and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivikarnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we explore some of the recent issues that we are most outraged by or most optimistic about. And we speak with Jonathan Safran Foer, author of the remarkable new book, We Are the Weather. Thanks for being here. So this week, we're going to mix things up a little bit. Um, we have been loving doing this podcast. It's been great, but we've had a problem. And that th- that problem, I suppose, has not really been a problem in the wider world. And that has been that there's been so much going on on climate change in an accelerated way that we are really struggling to fit it all in on a weekly basis. So we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Each of us, your three co-hosts, myself, Christiana and Paul, are all going to bring one thing that we are feeling either outraged by or we're feeling optimistic about from the last week or the coming week. And we're going to bring that and we're just going to discuss it for a few minutes and kind of dig into it. Is it really optimistic? Uh, Does it really make us optimistic? Does it really make us outraged? So we can understand from a deeper perspective some of the many things that are coming at us. So that's the plan. What do you think, guys? Well, let's try it because we're actually optimistic and outraged, not just every day, but almost like every minute of the day. So let's do it. (laughs) I think it's going to be tremendous. Wow, that's a blast from the past. Right. Okay. Uh, Well, Christiana, why don't we start with you? How are you feeling this week? Um, Well, right now, because uh, this week is actually too many things to um, share, but right now, I am feeling the following um, from the global perspective. I'm actually still outraged by the fact that the last climate summit that was convened by the Secretary General, 70 countries came forward to say that they had actually either already started or will start the process to increase their um, level of ambition and improve their nationally determined contributions toward the Paris Agreement. However, none of those are large economies. There's not a single G20 country that's in there. And so those 70 countries represent under 20% of global emissions. Wow. That, I think, is just incredible that we are only a year out from having to improve our nationally determined contributions, and we do not have any major economies uh, coming forward with their plans yet. So not good news on that front. However, I am actually quite delighted that the Russian Federation have just deposited its uh, instrument of ratification of the Paris Agreement, which means they are now a solidly ratifying country. Um, They're actually country number 187. That is amazing. 187 countries around the world, in fact, just 197 is the total parties to the convention. So only 10 countries have not ratified. That is a United Nations record. Mm. And what ratified means is they have made the Paris Agreement into national law. So um, 
That's actually very interesting. The Russian Federation was also the last one that ratified um, the protocol, the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, and so there's, you know, it, it takes a while for these uh, wheels to turn in the Russian Federation, but they are uh, on board. And that is, I think, from a geopolitical point of view, very interesting, given the fact that we know that the United States will proceed with its uh, withdrawal from the Paris Agreement next year in November, which is the first time that they're able to do that. But very interesting that the Russian Federation, despite everything that the United States has been saying, has now actually entered as a ratifying country. And do you, Christiana, this is a bigger question probably that we can get into now, but do you feel optimistic that the Russian Federation is actually taking climate change seriously? Because the fires this year were just something else there. Well, you know, the Russian Federation, I think, sits in a very difficult position with respect to climate change because on the one hand, uh, being a country that has so much area and territory that is very close uh, to the um, extreme north, they will gain in territory that is actually inhabitable, that is perhaps even... Um, able to be cultivated for agriculture. A lot of that territory is now too cold, but they will gain in that. They will also probably gain, and they know this, um, once we no longer have summer Arctic ice, they will be one of the beneficiaries of that opening that will be um, available for ships to uh, to go through that northern route as opposed to going through the much longer southern route from east to west. So those two are definitely advantages that they have. And on the other hand, they know that they have already been experiencing huge forest fires. And they also know that if their um, tundra is actually going to melt, if their permafrost melts, they have a lot of oil and gas infrastructure that is built on that frozen area. And if that begins to melt, A, for the planet, it's a disaster because a lot of methane will be released, but they will lose a lot of that infrastructure. So there's sitting, frankly, between two seats. And I don't think that they have decided uh, whether they will be ultimately, what is their net uh, result from climate change, whether they will be ultimately more beneficiaries or ultimately more losers. Are they winners or losers? They're both. But uh, which side of the ledger is heavier, I think, is still up for, um, up, up for them to decide. So, um, Christiane, I mean, the fact that only that 70 countries, but still more than 80% of countries have not come forward and stepped up. I mean, this really stacks the deck in terms of the challenge that's left to run over the course of the next year when we need to get the vast majority of those countries stepping up. Does, do you feel optimistic about that road or are you still feeling like that's going to be pretty challenging? I think it's still pretty challenging um, and way, way too early to call. I know that the Secretary General will continue to call on countries uh, to, to do so, as well as uh, many of the leaders in the private sector and in the finance sector who have totally understood that it is in their interest as well. Um, but it's too close. I, I think it's too, too early to know whether they will be... We know that the United States won't as a federal government... Uh, uh, they will with many of their local governments and state governments, but the other countries, too early to tell. Yeah. 
What do you think, Paul? Well, between now and whenever it is next year, when governments can no longer really you know, make up new plans, I guess the next 12 months are the most incredibly important time in terms of communicating to governments of the world that they're either going to be part of the future or part of the past. They can have a 19th century economy or a 21st century economy, and it's right now they've got to make their minds up. And those commitments will drive them forward to success and make us all safe, and failure to do so will put them in some kind of economic dark age. I hope they make the right decision, but as Christiana says, the big ones are yet to jump. So what are you guys optimistic or outraged about? Well, I mean, the comment you just made actually pivots quite nicely into what I was going to say about how how I'm feeling, um, and then we'll go to you in a minute, Paul, if that's all right with you. I actually feel am feeling really optimistic about the UK's a process that it's undertaking to host the COP next year. I mean, you know, this builds on what you were saying just now. I mean, the political mountain to climb between now and a positive outcome in Glasgow, because ultimately it will be judged on were w- was it able to bring the temperature trajectory back down cl- much closer to a safe level. Um, but I've been getting to know the team who are um, sitting in the cabinet office and other parts of the government, uh, led by Claire Perry, who is the president-elect of COP26. And I spent quite a bit of time with her in New York and have been on the phone with her and also her team. Um, there's a guy called Charlie Ogilvy who's running strategy for them. And, you know, I mean, it's early days, but... I'm feeling really optimistic that even now, 15, 16 months out, they're really getting their heads around what is going to have to happen to make this successful. How can the diplomatic system of the UK actually be deployed against a really challenging backdrop with Brexit and other things to try to encourage encourage countries to step up? And I've been really impressed with them. I mean, I think, you know, compared to the situation we had in 2015, Christiana, this is much more challenging. Um, and so it's too early to say whether or not they'll be successful. But I think they have as good a shot as they could have given the team they're putting together, given the approach that they're taking of putting their arms around, you know, lots of different stakeholders, lots of ambition from different parts of the economy. Um, You know, I'm actually feeling really good about it. I think that um, the geopolitics will play out as they will, but I think that we'll get to a good outcome in Glasgow. It is earnestly to be wished for. As as the only non-Brit uh, on this uh, on this conversation, yeah. could I say that I'm also quite impressed with uh, with the determination of, of that team? It's quite unusual for a COP presidency to already begin to dig its teeth into the issues and put a team together and already start to travel like Claire Perry is traveling in her in her role as incoming uh, president. Um, as soon as she has, right? She's already uh, really stepped into that role now already for, I think, two months. That's actually very far in advance compared to others. And I have no doubt that the UK will really um, display its diplomatic capacity around the world for a success. Let's remember that this will be their very first global slash international slash multilateral uh, step up stage after Brexit. And so not only is it important for the planet, it's also important for the political and geopolitical positioning of uh, of the UK that that be a very important success. So they're stepping up and uh, and I think it is fantastic. 
And the truth is that this is more important than Brexit. I realise that Brexit seems to be sucking up all the political oxygen in the UK at the moment and absorbing everybody's time. But the reality is that this is more important. And in a very few years, we will look back, I think, with astonishment at the amount of attention and time and energy we spent debating whether we want to be part of a club when actually this far more important issue was breathing down our necks. Well, I think it's, it, you know, kudos to them that they have realized that they need to begin engaging on the COP while Brexit is still playing out. Uh, they already have, uh, you know, their, their strategy and development, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm very impressed that they haven't let the Brexit mess um, stop them from beginning to focus on these much more uh, important and long-lasting issues. So just one more thing, and then I'd love to hear from you how you're feeling this week, Paul. Um, and that is that Claire Perry has taken this position as the COP president. And I don't know, maybe this is the first time this has ever happened. You'll probably know, Christiana. Um, but normally, uh, the COP presidency is held by an individual who also has a wide range of ministerial responsibilities, a kind of portfolio of, of issues. And Claire, of course, was a minister. But my understanding is that she relinquished the rest of her ministerial post in order to focus just on this. And I think that's incredibly positive because to have her sole focus be this issue for the next 15, 16 months through to the COP, rather than having to deal with a whole range of other things, is going to give her so much more capacity as she builds out her team to just focus on this and ensure we can get a positive outcome. Yeah, well, I think I think it is a first and it's a huge luxury for the climate process. I'm delighted. And also, let's remember that Claire Perry doesn't come new to this, right? She does have quite a bit of experience um, and has been with the uh, with the climate um, negotiating process for quite a few years. So all, all, all good. It's all denotes uh, experience and commitment. Awesome. Paul, what's motivating you this week? Well, I'm optimistic, actually, about um, increased recognition that corporations have leadership in this area, but that their lobbying must also be considered as part of that leadership. And there have been many news articles, uh, both positive and negative, about different aspects of corporate lobbying. I think I've talked about this before, but almost my life's mission, certainly the last 30 years probably, have been trying to reveal to the public that, that um, corporations are actually very political actors. They, they pretend not to be. And I'm, I'm going to just give you a little story uh, for that. Uh, Christiana quite rightly told me off a little bit last week for being almost too uh, fawning and, and kind towards uh, a dear Ethan Brown of, of Beyond Meat. But the truth is... Um, I'm, I've been very struck in 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 my life by uh, something on 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 the television news, BBC News, where the the interviewers will try and beat up the politicians. You see, they'll 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 say the politicians are a very bad lot and they're they're leading us astray. But actually, I think that that's quite a that's quite a negative way of 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 talking to people. But also, I think politicians have probably got much less power uh, than than we realise. Less and less globalisation has has been diminishing their power. And so um, I think it's almost unfair to keep kind of punching them. Whereas corporate uh, leaders actually have enormous power that we're only beginning to recognise. So I've been trying to be nice and get them to recognise their their political role because I think that'll be very 
good for society generally. And just one tiny thing that uh, that came up after uh, Ethan Brown interview. You know, he was talking about how ninety percent or ninety three percent of agricultural land could be uh, could be liberated and. Um, just the next day, I, I, I got a phone call from someone who's uh, working on a sustainability strategy at an airline, and they said it was a very bold strategy. Uh, but I said, well, maybe, but uh, you know you can run airplanes on, on, on bioethanol, corn ethanol, uh, which, which famously you can, of course. Uh, and she said, well, yes, but the problem is, uh, you know, you can't compete with food. And I said, oh, my God, you airlines should back these plant-based meat companies because you can solve each other's problems enormously. If people start eating plant-based meat and the farmers start growing corn ethanol, uh, that can actually give us a sustainable uh, aviation industry. Anyway, I didn't mean to digress, but I'm I'm positive about this increasing recognition of the the potentially very very dangerous role for companies that uh, that lobby against uh, government action, which I think is outrageous, and the very very positive role uh, for for companies that are arguing in favour of government action to tax and regulate greenhouse gas emissions, reduce us emissions, and and get us to where we need to go. Christiana's frowning. No, Paul, can you can you say two more sentences on that very interesting relationship between biofuels needing land to produce the plants um, and the move toward plant-based protein. I, I've never heard anyone put those two things together. So I think that's a very interesting thought. Can you say two more sentences on that? Well, yes. I mean, I was running around in little circles with excitement in my kitchen. I was talking to uh, someone and she it's works for It's not a an very airline. large kitchen. It's, not a, it's a tiny kitchen. I mean, kitchen's a rather grand name for it, but an area of my almost uh, ant-like dwelling. Um, I was running around in circles because this uh, lady from an airline, she, she said they were going to be doing something bold, uh, which is great, but um, there's just no way anything could be as bold as the entire global airline fleet moving to grown fuel to uh, bioethanol, corn ethanol, whatever, you know, however you grow your ethanol. Now, the reason why the global airline industry doesn't talk about that is because it will require huge, huge land area to grow that much uh, fuel. But of course, if Ethan Brown is right, and we can reduce land area from animal agriculture by 90% or 93%, as he said. The two moves, the, the, the move to, to make plant-based meats and the move to have biofuel for aeroplanes become the same solution uh, to two problems. It's beautiful. Wow. Now, there is a topic to be investigated by a, an interview with, I don't know, someone, uh, an enlightened CEO of an airline company? Yeah, that's a good idea. Richard Branson actually put a lot of uh, energy into uh, bioethanol um, a while ago, but I think you know the airline industry has always been nervous about conflicting with food requirements. Yeah, that's very interesting, Paul. And uh, I also agree, uh, really agree with your earlier point that um, corporations, uh, it is optimistic that corporations are now being called upon to be more consistent around what they're doing for their climate change strategy and how they are engaging with governments to actually push for particular regulation and legislation. And I remember realizing this a couple of years ago that we had this kind of crazy situation where many of the companies that actually were out in front in terms of action to reduce emissions were not 
aligning that apparent leadership position with how they were engaging in their lobbying and that many of them were members of trade associations that were you know lobbying vociferously against the kinds of policies that the leadership said that they would support or supporting legislative candidates who were voting against climate action you know up to 100% of the time so bringing those two things together i think is 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 really important and is one of one of the uh, the most interesting things that's happening at the moment um but this other idea that you just came up with is also very intriguing Our interview this week, in a way, is kind of about this, not about this specific issue, but about our relationship with the land. Jonathan Safran Foer um, uh, has written this book, and he sort of is utilising it as a way to sort of say, our relationship with climate change is about our relationship with food. It can be understood that way at least as well as it can be understood as our relationship with fossil fuels. And if we're going to get on top of this, our relationship with food has to be brought front and centre to what we're doing and how we're thinking about it. And Tom, what reactions did we get to our previous interview, um, which was also a similar topic? Yeah, no, that's interesting, Christiana. And and, and it, we should make that point, actually. Um, last week, um, we had another interview about land and meat. Um, Ethan Brown, the CEO of Beyond Meat, was on. And we had a huge response to that interview. I mean, enormous numbers of emails that came in, people that contacted me or the podcast directly, uh, loads of social media engagement, um, sort of like, you know, f- significantly more than we would normally get for an episode. And I think it sort of speaks to the fact that it dealt with an issue that is very close to people's lives. You know, food is very close to people's lives. People are really looking for the things that they can do that are meaningful, that are going to make a big difference. And I think his narrative there of, you know, that meat doesn't have to come from a, from an animal, that you can have plant-based meat, that we can create this positive world that is over 90% better in terms of land use and energy, et cetera, was really compelling for people. And I think for those people who are listening, who, um, who enjoyed that, uh, we have a great interview for you today. So Jonathan Safran Foer um, is an author. He's a novelist uh, by background, really, and he's written some outstanding novels earlier in his career. He's probably best known for his books, Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. But what he's written here in this book, We Are the Weather, is a really fresh take on climate change. He's kind of looked at it from this perspective of, of land and, and a land-based response. He comes up with some really thoughtful, insightful pieces of analysis as to why we have kind of struggled to join the dots as a society in a deeper way on climate. And he makes some really practical recommendations. One thing I really like is he sort of says, we're not going to solve this probably with more vegetarians and vegans, but we are going to solve this with more flexible diets. So just take one meal or take two meals and, and, and don't eat meat there. And that immediately has a huge response. So, um, so yeah, I'm excited to talk to him. Okay, very cool. Well, let's listen to this interview. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I'm really honored to be here. So I, I have to start by telling you a story because we're, we're sitting here in New York and we just arrived a couple of days ago. And your publishers very kindly sent me a copy of your new book. So I climbed aboard the plane with full intention of spending the, the flight reading it. And I glanced away for a moment and my wife had taken it. And she gave it back to me five hours later with tears in her eyes, telling me that it was the best book on climate that she'd ever read. And she's very rightly read on the topic, um, which then inspired me to dive in. And I have to say, it is fantastic. As somebody who has spent a lot of time 
looking at this issue, you found a fresh way to come at it with a different sort of style. It's really good. Anyone listening, you should absolutely read this book. It's called We Are The Weather. Thank you very much. So with that introduction, okay. <laughs> uh, with that introduction, I wanted to hold, just... Hold on, Jonathan, how long did it take you to write that book? When did you first have the idea? I'm asking because Tom and I are in the process. Yeah, I had the idea, I would say, about two years ago, something like that. And um, I don't even know if idea is what I would describe the inciting moment. Um, the way I sometimes describe it is I, I have two kids. They're 13 and 10. This doesn't happen as much now, but it still, it still does happen much more when they were younger, that I would be in one room, maybe at the kitchen counter, doing something, paying a bill or getting a little work done. And they'd be in the other room, horsing around, entertaining themselves. And I'd hear like a little more noise than I was comfortable with, but I could manage to maintain my focus on the day-to-day -day things that I had to get done. And then something would break. And I would think, okay, it's probably not important. I'm going to try to just push on. Stay focused on mm -hmm. the bill payments. <laughs> and then one of them would start crying. I think I, I still think that I can manage this. And then something would happen, a shriek or, you know, a bunch of books falling from the shelf or something. And I would just, you know, put my palms on the counter like that and I'd say, enough. And I would get up and go address whatever was going on. And I had a, a bit of a, a, an enough moment vis-a-vis um, -vis climate change, except that I was the adult and the kid, um, where I, I thought I just cannot, it's now intolerable, um, knowing what I know mm. and caring in the ways that I care and not doing anything. And, that, and having your kids in front of you. And that's, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's a huge mm. part of it. And I knew so many people at the time and still know so many people for whom knowledge is not the problem, Right. And caring is not the problem. Right. Um, you know, in America, which is behind much of the rest of the world, knowledge isn't actually the biggest problem right now. 70% um, of Americans wanted to remain in the Paris Climate Accords, mm -hmm. including the majority of Republicans. Mm. Um, but there are an awful lot of people like myself who know and care and haven't... And? And haven't known how to be involved. Or, haven't or, known or, how to be or, involved. Or simply have chosen not to know how to be involved. Mm. Um, you know, 17% of Americans describe themselves as alarmed by climate change. 17, one seven. One seven. So it's very hard to explain how 91% acknowledge the science of climate change, but only 17 are, are alarmed by what they know. And I think, you know, this book is largely about that distance between knowing mm. and and believing. And that's And that's one of the interesting concepts that I really enjoyed in the book was you talk about the fact that climate has become kind of based on this idea of belief, right? And that we don't, you have some really interesting historical parallels where you talk about the fact that it doesn't really matter the motivations in some cases for a certain action. What matters is the action. And we don't really have an action-oriented culture. We have a belief-oriented culture around all of this. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit? Because I think it's a really interesting concept. Yeah, I did a reading in Austin last night and somebody asked me, Aren't you a little bit skeptical of companies that are now starting to behave in environmentally conscious ways that they're only doing it for financial gain? I said, who cares? <laughs> right. Who cares? Like the future's not going to look back and say, what were these companies feeling? And they're not going right. to look back and ask, what were we feeling? You know, they're going to look back and say, what were they doing? Mm. So we need to find ways to transfer. I mean, we've, it's first of all worth acknowledging that we've reached this moment, which is great, where Ignorance isn't the primary problem and indifference isn't the primary problem. But inaction is a really profound problem among progressives, among liberals, among, you know, 
people who like to think of themselves even or identify as environmentalists. So, um, you know, young people in particular are looking for ways to participate, not just to cheer from the sidelines. Right. And marching is a wonderful way to participate and to try to, you know, push the legislative dial and to work toward the kind of systemic change that we cannot fix this problem without. But um, I think a lot of people long to participate in their in their daily lives as well. And we know that there are good ways to do that. Hmm. I think one of the interesting things along that that you've talked about is that we, on climate change, we tend to focus on small differences rather than big areas that we agree on. Do you see that as beginning to change at all? I mean, with the marches that happened recently, do you think that there is an emergence of broad acceptance of things we agree on or do you not see that from where you sit? I think that a huge part of solving this problem will be solving the problem of how to talk about it right. and the storytelling problem so that um, it's not characterized as um, being divisive. Hmm. I don't think the desire to you know, save the planet for our kids and grandkids is something that there's broad disagreement about. I don't think that conservatives love nature or love the planet any more than liberals do or love their grandkids any more than liberals do. Um, obviously there's some stark disagreements about how to do what needs to be done or even whether to do what needs to be done. Right. But if we could take as a starting place that um, we both care, hmm. you know, I did an interview, the first interview I actually did was a podcast for a guy named Ben Shapiro, who's a far right conservative thinker in the US, about as far right as they come. And um, before I went on, my friend said, why would you do this? It's just nonsense. Like, why would you sit across the table from this mm. guy? And I disagree with an awful lot of his beliefs, but he's an undeniably very smart guy and a thoughtful guy. Right. And he has a huge audience. And there is no solving this problem unless we solve it together. Half of us are not gonna solve this problem. Um, so I went on and you know we warmed up conversationally a little bit. And then he said, okay, so climate change, what do you wanna talk about? And I said, well, what would you, how would you describe climate change? And he said, well, you know, the planet is gonna warm between two and six degrees centigrade over the course of the next century because of human activity. And I thought, that's not the description of a denier. You know, right. that's a pretty robust description. That's a great starting point. And we went from there, not with, you know, not trying to cherry pick facts to throw at each other like darts and not trying to push each other into rhetorical corners, but I think with a, some amount of humility um, and like a shared desire to accomplish something in the conversation. Mm. So I went to talk about my book, We Are the Weather, which proposes one way of participating as an individualist, eat a, a lot less meat. Right. By the end of the interview, he said, I will do that. <laughs> I will tell my listeners that we ought to do that. So it's not, everything is not kumbaya because there were still some very big disagreements. Like I think we need to have serious immediate systemic change and he doesn't. Hmm. But it's much easier to move forward once you're already moving than- Once you've know, you got momentum. Once you've got momentum. And yeah. um, it's another reason to move away from the kind of traditional binaries of, you know, in the case of food, we think the options are you're a vegetarian or you're not. Um, in terms of flying, we think you're somebody who flies or doesn't. Right. You know, completely, completely neglecting this vast middle space. Gray area in yeah. between. Yeah, which I think, I have yet to meet the person who doesn't want to enter 
that area. There are a lot of people who are afraid. Well, I have yet to meet the person who's not in that gray area. The fact is there is nothing black or white in the world, right? It's all shades of gray, despite the fact that some of us may think that we are over here or over there. There are certainly people like myself until very embarrassingly recently who didn't entertain the question of, um, you know, how much less could I fly? I just did what I did. And you know, one of the, I think, important things that I've been discovering is the necessity to have a, a real plan and to codify your plan and right. have witnesses for your plan. I did a reading in Brussels a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of the reading, there's a, you know, a book signing and a young couple came up and um, pushed their copy of the book in front of me and opened it to the title page, which is normally empty, except for the title, and is filled with their handwriting. And I said, what's this? And they said, we're getting married in a couple of months. And we decided just tonight that if we don't have a plan, we're gonna keep doing what we've always done. Mm-hmm. And their plan there was- There was a plan written there in they, the book. In their nice. own handwriting. Oh, yeah. nice. And it gets nicer. <laughs> their plan was, uh, we are not gonna eat meat unless served it at a friend's house and there isn't an option that feels comfortable to us. We're gonna eat vegan twice a week. We're gonna have no more than two kids and we're not gonna drive more than 1500 kilometers per year. Wow, so you can, there is a plan. That's yeah. a real plan. And then at the, at the bottom of the page, they had a line that said witness. And they said, would you sign it there? Wow. And I was wow. really moved and also- Very moving. A little bit ashamed because I realized only then that I didn't actually have a plan. Hmm. I mean, I have a plan for, for eating, but that's just a small, or it's a significant, but it's mm. just only a part of what mm. it is that we need to do. And I started giving it an awful lot of thought to the power of the difficulty of stating what your own ambitions are, because for a lot of us, they will be, they will seem embarrassingly unambitious. And the power of then not only giving it words and numbers, but sharing it with yeah. other people and asking other people to participate. And what's, I think one interesting thing about that that we've been talking about as well is if you look at, you know, this is obviously an urgent challenge, but the science suggests that we have 10 years to reduce emissions by maybe a bit more than half. Now, we tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10, right? So you not only do you need a plan, but you need to say it. If we said in 10 years, our emissions need to be 60% lower, that's actually not that intimidating when you put it in that term and it involves capital expenditures and a whole range of other things. I completely agree. And there are many ways of looking at that same change. So if you were to ask me, what are the odds that in 10 years, half of America will be vegetarian? I would say zero or close to zero. (laughs) If you were to ask me, what are the odds that in 10 years, half of the meals eaten in America will be vegetarian? I would say, I think that's extremely likely. Mm. It's the same outcome, but it's a really different way of looking at it, moving away from these identifiers. But that's a great point there. It's about, that seems a little bit, Climate climate action seems to have been a little bit in conflict with the politics of identity, right? Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And it becomes it it precludes unfortunately it, it often precludes efforts. Yes. You know, like daily choices. Whether the choice is what you eat when you fly or how you are political. Yeah. You know? Um, we need to we have been measuring the distance from some kind of perfection that nobody's gonna attain anyway, hmm. instead of measuring the distance from doing nothing. From where we are. 
Yeah. yeah. But, you know, Jonathan, your story of this couple um, br- brings up a um, conundrum, I think, for me, uh, which is I, I have the sense that those of us who have been working on climate for years have made the huge mistake of um, putting out, motiv- not motivation, but narrative and reasoning why we should do this that sees this from the global perspective and from a moral responsibility perspective as far as humans is concerned. Um, and I've been quite intent lately on trying to change that around and saying there is a global need and there is a, a moral responsibility, no question, but if we are also, if to that we add the immediate benefit, then there is a stronger motivation. So your, you know, your favorite couple, if they understand, or you yourself, that by eating less meat or no meat, um, that actually your personal health, in addition to the planetary health, your personal health is better. Um, does that not add to the motivation? Uh, it, are, are we, have we not gone overboard with what the planet needs versus what do I need right now? And can we not accelerate by being a little bit more, I'm not sure egotistical, but self-centered? What, what's in it for me? How am I going to get, how, how do I benefit from this? Without a doubt, I completely agree. Sometimes that case is easier to make as with food. Sometimes it's harder to make with, as with flying. flying. <laughs> but uh, one point that I often... Um, make is that, you know, the pleasure of a meal, let's say, ends with the last bite that you swallow. It doesn't extend beyond that. If we want to have more pleasure from food, we're going to have to eat more food at the next meal. The pleasure of being oneself, of, I think a lot of people right now feel a low level deniable alienation from themselves, Mm. not to mention the alienation from everybody else in the world, this complete disconnect that we've been experiencing, but which I think is being corrected. But an alienation from ourselves and that we know we should be doing something. We know it. We know that there's a problem that we could participate, whose, whose, whose solution we could participate in, and we're aware of ourselves not acting. It is a huge relief to start acting. I have yeah. felt it and everybody I've ever met who starts to make changes in the interest of solving this problem feels it. This strange, like, kind of almost you feel peacefulness. feel better about yourself, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as I was, um, I did a reading at a, a high school in Boston the other day. There were 500 teenagers. It was <laughs> difficult to keep their attention. It was a really, really wonderful afternoon. And um, one of the things I said to them was, imagine if you were the first you know, carbon neutral school in your city or in the state. That would probably take some amount of effort. It would probably require some frustrations, some inconveniences. It would be dishonest to pretend that it would be easy or effortless. Mm. But do you think you'd be a happier school after you did that? Do you think it would feel amazing to know that uh, kids in other schools would look to your school and say, how can we be more like that? That they be demanding that their principal get in touch with your principal to find out you know, how your model worked. I think there's something, I mean, students feel this at marches, obviously, yeah. but there is something happy and exhilarating in participating. Mm. Contributing to the solution. Yeah, and it, yeah. It is, it's a selfish pleasure as well. Yeah. Um, we're, we are too- Well, used- it helps address the helplessness, right? Sorry that I use help twice in the same sentence, but I think you see what I mean. <laughs> um, because I think climate has been perceived as being so complex and so multifaceted and so far away. 
uh, both in geography and in time. It's, you know, it's about those people over there across the world. It's about three cent- three generations down the line. Um, and so to just bring it home, it's like, it's right here. It is with me and I can do something right now. There is a relief to that. It, it lifts that veil of helplessness. I completely agree. And it's the opposite of the kind of martyrdom that a lot of people imagine we're going to have to experience yeah. or yeah. sacrifice. You know, pure sacrifice. Yeah. 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 Um, in the book, I quote this really, I think, wonderful speech that FDR gave when talking about home front efforts during World War II. And, you know, he says, not look, not everyone is going to have the privilege of fighting overseas. Not everyone's going to have the privilege of mm. making munitions for our soldiers, but we all have the privilege of making these changes in our daily lives. And when we look back, once we've won the war, nobody's going to remember them as sacrifices. Yeah. Um, One of the other concepts that I really liked was this idea of the wave that you come up with. Can you just explain that? Just talk about, you know, the power of social contagion and of doing things together. Um, I use the metaphor both of a wave at a sporting event. I don't Mm. know if that's what, what... you call it outside of America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I have been to many baseball games in my life and participated in many a wave. I've never initiated one myself mm. and I've never risen because I was spontaneously filled with the emotion. I do it because it's what we do yeah. together and it feels good to participate in that way. And I think we are on the verge of, if we're not already experiencing these kinds of waves, Certainly the march was evidence right. of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that eating trends, especially among students, are expressions of that. You know, there's more vegetarians on American college campuses now than Catholics. There are more <laughs> vegetarians than any major of study, like English, biology, math. And oh, uh, well, How do you count that? Hold on. There are more vegetarians than Catholics and there are more vegetarians... Than th- English majors or psychology majors or, oh, a, or any I major see, of study. I see, I see. Okay. Um, but what I have found inspiring actually is not the rise of vegetarianism, but the rise of meat eaters who want to eat less meat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 90% of the people who have bought Beyond Burgers in supermarkets... Like all, them. Well, not only that, but they also bought meat hmm. during the period that they bought Beyond Burgers. Um, 36% of meat-eating Americans say they are eager to eat less meat. And um, I think as the, these binaries break down and yeah. go away... Um, so you're saying, don't let, let's not worry about being perfect. Let's take one or two or three steps. Let's, take, let's, let's be honest about what our own limits are, mm. yeah. first of all. Like if we can take three steps, let's take three rather than one. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think it can be really important to... to actually state aloud what your plan is going to be, you know, yeah. to have an honest confrontation with yourself. I, I could say, look, you know, I've taken a lot of planes in the last couple of weeks as I've been trying to talk about these issues. I've made a calculation with myself that I think those flights are justified. Other people would disagree with me. Yeah. Um, when I investigate, when I have an honest confrontation with myself about how much less I could fly, I know I don't need to fly for vacations in 2020. Hmm. So I have said that. And I'm going to do that. Hmm. If I hadn't said it, I don't believe that I would do it. If right. it were just a kind of amorphous idea, like, yeah, I'm going to try to fly less in 2020. I don't know that I actually... It wouldn't withstand the moments of... Yeah. yeah. So I think there's a kind of balancing act between both an appreciation of efforts and doing our best, but also a rigorousness about mm-hmm. doing our best. Because it, it can be easy to slip into... Mm-hmm. 
feeling better about what you're doing than without you are doing to. too much yeah. yeah yeah well i've got to say i think the book is fantastic i think it, i really enjoyed it and i love the you have a conclusion at the end where you suggest that people don't eat meat breakfast and lunch and then do whatever they want for dinner which i think is an, a, a great example of what you're talking about yeah i mean i yeah. hope i hope that some people will read it and say god i can go further than that right yeah. uh, it's it's good to go further and yeah. there'll be people who read it and say i can't do that but i could do breakfast yeah and i would say let's just start, start. we start have there. to start yeah yeah, yeah. I thought it was refreshing and really great. So amazing, amazing work. And thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Cool. So that was a really interesting conversation, I felt. Um, What an amazing and thoughtful person about so many of the different issues we're facing. And apart from the else, it makes me very optimistic that people like Jonathan are now really doubling down and getting engaged in the climate discussion, which is fantastic. Um, What did you guys leave that discussion with? I was extremely touched by his story of the couple who who gave him a book to sign and inside the cover it had their plan for, you know, how they were going to limit their uh, consumption, their their greenhouse gas emissions, consumption of meat and all the rest of it, and and asked him to sign it and kind of witness their plan. And actually, um, I really thought it was it was great the way he he noticed he didn't personally have a plan when he signed that book and it was a, a realization for him so that was that was quite powerful the other thing i loved was his kind of pragmatism <clears throat> and he made a very interesting comment about um you know what if a company's doing the right thing just to make money uh and he said i don't care at all as long as they're doing the right thing which i think is also an interesting um sort of way of of making this whole thing less ideological yeah i agree with that and um just just to take the the story of the couple with their plan uh, one notch further, one of the major um, contributions of this book is to demystify the challenge of addressing climate change and bringing it v- b- literally to our kitchen table so that it's no longer, you know, these governments, what are they doing in their ratifications or their NDCs or all of that that is very, very far away from our daily life. And the fact that he just makes it so simple, it really is about what is on your kitchen or on your dining table and what you buy and what you eat. And I just think it's it's so helpful to, to come down to the individual choices and to really realize how consumer demand, consumer choices, consumer preferences can have such a huge impact because somehow we don't realize the little food that we buy individually that we are actually contributing to a huge global issue, but we are. And so bridging that, you know, from the global to the individual and from the supply to the demand side, I think is very helpful. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And also the point about, you know, Belief really doesn't matter, uh, whether it's corporations trying to um, make a profit and do the right thing at the same time, or even, you know, he is some examples in his book of, of people who take great sacrifice in, you know, a, a great personal peril in the Second World War, you know, hiding people who are at risk and things like that. Again, the motivations aren't remembered. What's remembered is the action. So um, I love that, that he drew that out. I also think, you know, he really makes a great point, and it's been made before, but he makes it very well, that 
to a degree, the politics of identity have been in contrast with the politics of climate change, that there have been, you know, much of the things we've been cultivated and advertised to kind of lust after are in contradiction to the things we need to do for climate change. And that requires quite a deep sort of unpicking of what makes a good life. And I think it's great that someone as thoughtful as him is weighing in on this issue and writing these amazing books. There is that uh, old political saying, the personal is political. And I think We Are the Weather is a great summarization of that, in a sense, a condensation of that notion. I have a friend who has actually explained that every time they've reduced carbon from their life, they've improved their quality of life. And I think that's you know, very true for many people. If if you look at the things you do in your life, I don't think you're necessarily enjoying yourself more when you're expending a lot of carbon, often the reverse. Absolutely. Cool. All right. This has been fun. Thanks, guys. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Callum Grieve, Freya Newman, Pete Clutton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, and Zoe Cholacantich. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrup. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do hit subscribe and leave us a review. We also love the feedback, podcast at globaloptimism.com. So many of you have been writing in, and we do try to respond to every email. Thanks for that kind of feedback. We really appreciate it. Please keep them coming. We'll see you next week.